You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Professor David Kirk Philp, along with Dr. Esteban. Emeritus Marconi. And we are emeritusly joining you from the Music Biz 101 and More studios in scenic America. And it's great to have you here. Dr. Esteban, how are you today? Good. And you? I don't think I've ever been better. And I'm so happy that you are with me today. Ah, and you have such a uh, nicely decorated office behind yeah. you. Yes, I am in the offices of William Patterson, the university. And mm-hmm. by the way, this is where University of William Patterson, this is where we just won one of the, again, a great award from Billboard magazine, one of the best music yes. programs in the nation of America. So that is very cool. Yes. And we have a guest today, Frank Malfitano, who is going to be with us. And before he joins us, we should uh, give thanks. Do you agree? Sure. We will give thanks to the folks at Bandine Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management, with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we also do would l- want to give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals and amateurs all over the world. Manage their investments, plan out for their retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future, think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. As we always do. And then we should also mention Managing Your Band, 7th edition, out now, it's been out, it's percolating, it's simmering, it's boiling, it's ready for you to open and learn, right? Correct. That's right. All right. So now we have our guest. Frank Malfitano, ready to join. All right. I'm here today with a uh, old friend from Syracuse. We go back actually to the Syracuse New Times. Uh, and that was in the uh, early 70s. I know that I was writing some reviews. I know you were there and a close friend, of course, Mike Greenstein was uh, trying to hold the helm up and so on and so forth. But we were part of what was known in Syracuse as Westcott Nation, actually, which was the liberal part of the um, of the city. And at that time, the outskirts were not very liberal at all. And I don't think it's changed very much. So the little part that we had was really uh, near the university and then, of course, in some of the, the other areas. 
So anyway, we're here with Frank Malfitano. And Frank, Mal, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your own background first? Well, the one thing I think we should add right now with that prelude is the fact that you and I met in the early 70s. And uh, as you mentioned, and your band was the only band. You were in a band called Jam Factory, which is an incredible show band. One of the best bands that ever came out of Syracuse. I think the best band that ever came out of Syracuse. And it was a it was a, a group that included uh, members from Syracuse University, as well as from the Syracuse community. And that was rare for its time. You know, there were university bands on campus. There were town, towny bands in town. But Jam Factory was a merging of the two. And that was great for me because I graduated from Syracuse and I hung out at Syracuse when I was a kid growing up and uh, uh, at the Hill on Marshall Street. And I mean, uh, that was the connection and music was the connection. And there was a great, great club there called Jabberwocky in the basement of Kimmel Dining Hall that presented everybody from Charlie Mingus to Muddy Waters. I mean, it was uh, Taj Mahal, James Brown. You know, I, I I could go on and on. Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor. It was a fantastic club. And it had me on campus a lot. And, uh, you know, if you grow up in a city the size of Syracuse, the university is is Times Square. It's right. it's uh, it's really a big deal. It's really an energized place. And I got to meet great people like you and and Mark Hoffman and and all the guys that were in the band, Gene McCormick, the late Gene McCormick, unfortunately, and Earl Ford. And um, I, I just thought it was a sensational band. It was the best thing I had ever seen. I never missed a gig. And when I actually started presenting the music 51 years ago in 1972, you were the first band that I ever presented, Steve. Ah. Uh, you and a group called Wide Blues, and we did a double bill out at Captain Max. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the, the expanded Captain Max in Manlius. So uh, it was a rich scene back then. It was very fertile. There were a lot of conversations going on musically that were amazing. Um, I was a student musician in high school, and um, I played clarinet. And uh, eventually wound up in all city and all county and all state uh, band and orchestra. And uh, but at the time, there were no jazz charts for high school bands. Uh, guys like Bardoon and Nistica weren't charting yet. So we were doing Broadway show tunes and <laughs> classical stuff. Right. I was we were doing My Fair Lady and Brigadoon and, and, and stuff like and West Side Story. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so I grew up on Broadway and I grew up on classical music, but uh, one day we were on a band bus going to a football game and this guy in the back of the bus says, hey, man, you like jazz? And he starts playing some some Dixieland stuff on his clarinet. And I, I, I think, you know, it was maybe about 1958. And I said, wow, there's a whole new world out there that I know nothing about, you know, and that was kind of the beginning of it for me. Uh-huh. Okay, so when did you uh, get the bug that you actually might be able to present something known as jazz in in central New York with maybe 150,000 people in the city itself? Uh, I, I'd been going to, uh, I was a junkie. You know, I, like I said, I was in Jabberwocky every night. I was out in the clubs every night. I, I couldn't get enough. And, uh, 
And eventually I, I, I had satiated the market. So I started going to festivals. I went to the Newport Jazz Festival, the Newport Folk Festival. I went to Woodstock. I went out to the West Coast for what was going to be the West Coast version of Woodstock in in uh, called the Wild West Show in Golden Gate Park. And it got canceled, wound up going to Altamont. But I was in San Francisco. And so I went to the Fillmore West every night and I kind of sat there at the at the feet of uh, the great Bill Graham and saw some of the greatest triple bills in the history of our music. And, uh, you know, eventually I said to myself, you know, I was at a blues festival in Toronto, I think it was great. It was great. I mean, everybody was there. Right. It was one of those deals. John Lee Hooker and this is uh, Harvey Mandel. Some amazing players. Right. Sunhouse. And I'm sitting there at the festival and I said, well, there's a stage, there's a sound system, there's people, there's no reason I can't do this in my hometown. I got sick of going out of town to, to see festivals and I thought, maybe we can bring one to Syracuse. Little did I know how much work was involved, but I, I certainly had the bug and I had the enthusiasm and I had been going to festivals out there around the country for a good 10 years. And uh, so, uh, you know, but uh, so the seed was up here in 72 when we first presented your band and I, and I got started. Um, but the festival didn't come around for another 10 years. Yeah. Right. And at that time, I was uh, actually 1973, 74, I was starting at Syracuse University. And the first job I had actually was to do the jazz ensemble. And I did the jazz ensemble as I became a faculty member in teaching music business. But I did the jazz because nobody else would do it. And I thought the university should have jazz. That was that was that was the impetus that got me actually doing ensembles and so on. And of course, with the university backing as small as it was, I was able to in the late 70s bring in Dizzy Gillespie and bring in Thad Mel and bringing Freddie Hubbard and bringing all these guys. Uh, and I stayed until about 84. But you were getting that bug, what, in the early 80s that this could possibly do something free in Syracuse? Well, yeah, the genesis of this is uh, it's it's not that much more complicated, but I think we should get into the weeds a little bit. Um Somebody had done something uh, in the Westcott Nation, as you mentioned, which was our enclave, right? That was our that was our little liberal bastion. I mean, it was our I don't know what it was our Greenwich Village. OK, yes. yes. Uh, and um, uh, there was a, a, a bar there called the Westcott Inn. And there was a guy named Tommy Smith who had tried to do a jazz festival in in the Westcott Inn, kind of an all day thing. And uh, and the next year, a couple of guys, Walt Shepard, a great writer, author, uh, poet, um, who left us um, last year. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, Walt and another guy, a, a drummer, tried to do something at Syracuse Stage, um, a, another all-day indoor festival. And it, it just didn't come off. And... They knew that I loved the music. We were friends. We wrote together at the New Times. And and so Walt said, would you get together with John? And I kind of want to brainstorm this with you because we, we still think it's a good idea. And I said, sure. Which I guess technically makes Walt the godfather of, of Jazz Fest as we know it. 
And um, we sat down and I said, well, what's the deal? And he said, well, the musicians don't want to do it. You know, they 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 did it and it didn't come off the way they want. I said, fine. I said, let's sit down with the musicians. So we got the band leaders from all the top bands and uh, I got them in a room and I said to them, what do you want this festival to be? Because it's time. Uh, the talent here is great. We need a showcase. Uh, how do you see it? They said, well, we want great advertising. We want a lot of people and we want a beautiful venue and we want quality sound and uh, we want it to be representative of, you know, what the scene is all about. I said, is that all? <laughs> I had a friend who owned a nightclub, also owned a nightclub in New York called uh, the Roxy. Uh, 1018 went by a lot of names on 10th Avenue and 18th Street. It's an old roller rink. And uh, his name was Gene Danino, and he owned a bunch of clubs in in uh, Syracuse, Club 37, uh, the Mad Hatter, um, the Country Club. Well, he had a joint that he had just opened up called, uh, uh, what was it called? Wait a minute. Oliver's, Oliver's Nightclub, right? And he and an ad, ad, ad agency guy, a G. Andre Delport, decided to put this thing on the map and he said we need a launch event and i said i got just the thing for you we were friends and i said would you take a chance on this so he took the he took the door and the bar and he gave us a piece of the action and uh, we did it and 1500 people showed up wow. and and the fire department came and shut us down and uh yes sir quick question for you just um, to, to take one step back, you just said he took the door and the bar and we took a little piece just for people listening who might not know what you mean by the door and the bar. Can you just explain that real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, there was a cover charge. That's what the door means. OK, so we charged something like two or three dollars to get in. And and uh, of course, he did great bar business that day. And uh, it was on a day that his club was not ordinarily open it was on a sunday afternoon and we ran it sunday afternoon and evening uh into the late evening and uh he took some of the portion uh of the bar proceeds and that helped subsidize the cost of putting on the show because we had no money we had no money and we were asking the musicians back then to work for whatever scale was it was very low right and uh, uh, but, you know, we had to convince the best players in town that this, Dave Hanlon and Bobby Hamilton and uh, Ronnie Lee and Larry Arlotta, these guys were the best of the best. Right. Frank Mosier. And I said, you know, guys, this is going to be great. And and fortunately, they believed in me. They picked up on my enthusiasm. They knew I was sincere. They had seen me at all their gigs. They knew that I you know, I, I knew how to do this and, and they, uh, they took a leap of faith and, and that's how it was born. Mm -hmm. so we did about six or seven of those and they were, they were all sold out. I mean, all, all the other places in town were calling the fire department saying, you got to shut these guys down because, you know, it was whatever. And it, and, and, and the music was great. And then we started bringing guest artists in people like, <clears throat> Kilimanjaro and John Blake and Rare Silk and, uh, you know, just kind of mid-range jazz acts. But we started punctuating the programming with uh, a national headliner. So that kept the draw going. And by that point, I was ready to go outside and uh, take whatever money we had saved up and accumulated and, and try to do an outdoor festival. So 
the first outdoor festival I did was at Song Mountain Ski Resort. Gorgeous, gorgeous. We had a little bit of money and uh, I called some of my friends in New York and we had the Heath brothers, Mose Allison uh, and Kevin Eubanks, who I used to see at McKell's all the time, right? I, I, that's another joint I lived at when I worked in the city. And uh, Pat and Mike, I mean, I, I, what can you say about McKell's? One of the great joints, right? So uh, I knew these guys and I asked them if they'd come up and they they said, yeah. And the rest of the lineup was all local bands. And we did a one day festival. Fantastic. Um, the the sax player on the who, who joined the Letterman band uh, late in the game. Oh, God, I'm just going to kill me. He played wow. with Shaka Khan for 11 years. He had a band out of Boston called Ictus. And uh, uh, oh, God, I hate it when I, I go brain dead. <laughs> and me too. Don't you hate it? So, uh, he came, so we had a great festival. Nine, Nancy Kelly was there. It was 99 in the shade. I mean, it was 100 degrees. I mean, it was nobody shows up. So how did you get the... Um, you Obviously, these guys are good coming up for at least a minimum or whatever, but how are you going to generate money or had you convinced them to come up and... And play because now we had some names. I mean, you know, it was more than than the locals. Well, we we had some money saved from all those club events, ah. and so we invested that in three national acts, four national acts, and and all the locals were on board because they thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So I said, you "Yeah, know. let's you know, let's do it. Let's see what happens." So no so, local or national sponsorships yet. Oh no. No, no, no sponsorships, mm -hmm. none, except that we we got the use of the ski lift for free, the ski, the the uh, lodge, ski lodge. Yeah. And so everybody sat on the side of the mountain, yep. looking down at the stage set up in front of the, the lodge. And it was great. And then musicians kept hitting us up for something called the Alpine slide. And they kept sliding down the mountain all day and they were happy, you know, and well, listen, we had a great time and it was great. It was very European. You know, the setting was beautiful. There was water in the mountain behind the, uh, at the base of the mountain behind the lodge. Yeah. And it was great, so, so but like it wasn't a proven site. So I said, Oh boy, back to the drawing board. And uh, there was a proven site in town called Long Branch Park. And uh, Joe Cocker had played there. Benny Mardonis had played there. A bunch of people had played there. And it was very successful. Uh, Jim McGuinn of the Birds. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they were they were pulling in 10, 12,000 people for shows. And it was it was a beautiful natural amphitheater in a county park. So I went to the guys that ran that music series two guys named Mark Gummer and Dave Allen. And I, and, and uh, they were at a show and, and I went to see them and I said, listen, I need your help. I, I want to move the festival to Long Branch Park. And, you know, you guys are established and, and would you join me in doing this? And they said, sure. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, Mark Gummer is still with me 40 years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, has been doing all of our production, staging, sound, lighting, crews, labor. Um, he, I mean, he's the best production coordinator in the country, as far as I'm concerned. And um, it, he's been invaluable. 
So uh, that was a partnership that uh, has paid dividends for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we did it at long. We, we did it that year. We had taken a year off. So it's 1985 now. The first outdoor one was 83. 84, we took off because uh, we had to retool it. We had to rethink it. And we had to meet the market where it was. And so uh, by going to an established venue, and I think that year we brought in Laurel Massey, who had been with Manhattan Transfer, Pat Matheny and the Yellow Jackets. And it was the Pat Matheny group with Lyle Mays and Steve Rodby and Paul Wertico, that band. Uh, or maybe Danny Gottlieb and Mark Egan were in that band. I can't remember, man. My, you know, I'm a little hazy, but I remember it was great. And I remember we drew thousands of people and I said, well, this is, this is really what's happening. And what was the price of admission? Oh, under $10. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any money. So right. I, I thought, well, this is encouraging because we never got in it to make money. Um, for me, it, it was always about a love of the music and creating an event that could bring people together. I mean, I, I figured that I was a liaison, you know, it was my job to get the music to the people and get the people to the music. Right. So well, then just real quick question then. So what, what was your day job? What was your day job during this time? Oh, uh, let's see the early eighties. Um, I was doing a little radio and I was doing a little television and I was doing some writing for the new times. And I, I was kind of a freelancer and I had maybe four or five small sources of income, but it really didn't matter because I wasn't on a career path or trajectory. I mean, that really isn't who I am or what I'm about. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm about the music and following the music and Wherever the music takes me, I figure that's my path. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. So what was the demographic of the audience in, at that time? Oh, it's probably all uh, all white. All okay. white, I think. Okay. Yeah, young, young, young. Yeah, we were all young. I was in my right. 30s, right? So, you know. Uh, yeah. you, you started now to, I would assume, think about a balance of acts so that you could please as many people as you could, but not offend people either. Well, uh, the offend part never really came into, I never really, I mean, I've always, I think, been sensitive to our audiences, but at the same time, as a guy who came through the 60s and was at Woodstock and I was in San Francisco at the Fillmore West, you know, uh, the 60s were an incredibly wonderful, exciting, turbulent time of change in the country. I don't think we'll ever see a decade like that again. And uh, there was a commonality of purpose. We were always, I marched with Dr. King in in 63 at Washington Mm -hmm. and marched again at the Poor People's March in Resurrection City and um, did different things with CORE and SNCC and uh, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and also uh, uh, Dave Ifshin was a friend at Syracuse University at Sigma Nu, and right. he got me involved with that. And CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, 
Um, and I was I, I was also uh, to your question, Professor, I was working in social work uh, when I got out of Syracuse. Um, there was a radical community action training program at Syracuse University uh, uh, called Community Action Training Center or something, CATC. And uh, the people that were on the faculty were uh, uh, Warren Hagstrom, who later founded the National Welfare Rights Organization, and Chuck Willie, and um, a guy by the name of Saul Alinsky out of Chicago, who founded the Woodlawn Organization. So I was trained by some of the best community organizers, and uh, the city wound up calling Chancellor Tolley at the time at the university and dismantling that program because organizers were coming off campus into the city and organizing. And that, that was a little threat at that point. But I took my training in, as a community organizer and melded it with my love of the music and organized a music festival that could serve a greater purpose. And the greater purpose in a segregated market like Syracuse, where there's a real town gown division uh, and, and everything is alienated and separated and divided, <clears throat> kind of like Trump's America, um, you know, it, it was important to bring people together in the community. I had been very fortunate. Um, there were a lot of uh, black owned and operated clubs in town that I used to frequent. And uh, maybe a funny story in here, um, but th they accepted me. The community, African-American community accepted me because I had been involved with social work and they knew that I marched with Dr. King. And mm -hmm. I had been adopted by the African-American community of Syracuse very early on as a kid. I mean, when I marched with Dr. King, I was 17. I went to work for an anti-poverty program called Peace Incorporated that was crusade for opportunity before that. And uh, at Peace, I did the Jazzmobile concerts that came into the city each year, uh, Clinton Square and Kirk Park. And I brought in um, uh, Bags, Milt Jackson, mm -hmm. Houston Person and Etta Jones, Irene Reed, uh, Silver. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. all this stuff, none of it was by design, but you can see that it's organically seeping its way into my being and becoming a a huge part of who I am. Mm -hmm. I never went in with the intention of doing, I was a social worker. I was a community organizer. I, I wanted better conditions for all people in Syracuse. And, but then eventually it occurred to me that the music is a way to bring us together and it's a way to organize and it's a way to get, rid of fear of the other because mm -hmm. as soon as people know each other and find out what they've got in common man everything is cool right so who was your first big sponsor well that's interesting that's interesting we stayed at that park i mentioned long branch park we stayed there until 1990 mm -hmm. and i think the turning point for us was uh bringing dizzy gillespie in i had um I had already produced a Legends of Jazz series called Jazz at the Center at the Civic Center. And I brought in Miles Davis and Dizzy 
and uh, Jimmy Heath and uh, Bobby McFerrin and Alan Holdsworth and Jean-Luc Ponty and Jean McLaughlin and Joe Zawinul and Weather Update. Um, so, and Tanya Maria from Brazil. So we had a great two-year jazz series. And after that, I got a call to, to, to go to work at the Blue Note mm-hmm. in New York. So I moved down to New York and then from there, I spent a couple of years in New York and then I moved down to DC to take over jazz times magazine uh, for Ira Sabin. And when I was there, Charlie Fishman and I got to be close friends and he was Dizzy's manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did a, a, a an entire jazz times magazine uh, devoted, dedicated to Dizzy. Mm-hmm. And I got to see Dizzy at uh, Blues Alley and we got to hang out and have dinner together and uh, and have Adams Morgan. And so by the time I got back to Syracuse, I said, hey, Charlie, Dizzy, would you guys come up to Syracuse and help me out with my festival? Mm-hmm. So when Dizzy came, I think that was really, you know, Pat Matheny for the launch. That was uh, that was a milestone kind of that was a benchmark. Right. Dizzy took us to the next level right and by that point we had kind of outgrown the park i had just come back from washington it was 1990 i they brought me back to run the landmark theater landmark theater is like your lowe's movie palaces right it was an old lowe's state theater Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a 1928 vintage movie palace beautifully ornate wonderful i think they called it indo-persian Romanesque, Byzantine, Egyptian, Oriental splendor. That was the architectural style, right? So I said, okay. Um, So I became director. And the first thing I did was met with the mayor. And I said, listen, I want to bring Jazz Fest downtown and make it free. Uh, Because the uh, free is the key, right? So he agreed and and he put his community in economic economic development people out into the community knocking on doors he found us our title sponsor who stayed with us for 25 years merchants bank and uh, he, he got our our con ed involved national grid niagara mohawk at the time and with those two anchors <clears throat> we we did a two-day two-stage festival downtown and and that was the birth of the modern era. And we went to a free admission policy. So overnight, our our corporate sponsorship went from zero, okay, mm-hmm. to sixty five thousand dollars, which is what the budget was for the first festival downtown that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would have been nineteen ninety one. And right. uh, was that the landmark or where was that? No, no, it was outside in in Clinton Square. Okay, is like a square right in the center of town, right? Surrounded by architecturally historic buildings that are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, but the only thing they had been doing there was the Christmas tree lighting, right? And uh, and they weren't even doing it on Black Friday, right after Thanksgiving. <laughs> they weren't even. I mean, so I I went into I said to the city I said, listen, I want to pioneer and re, and and, uh, and redevelop and reuse this site as a festival site. I said I think it'd be great, and they said, you know, okay, because hmm. the mayor was on board, so it was no problem getting 
the city's cooperation at that point. And we stayed there for 10 years and it grew and it grew and it grew until we had Ray Charles, Diana Krall, David Sanborn, Pete Fountain. And then we had 35,000 people in a square that could only hold 10. Mm -hmm. Now we're, were these acts when you went to the agents? Were these, uh, and you told them it was going to be a free outdoor? Were they a little uh, less stringent on uh, their uh, guarantees? No, no, huh? no. And that's a problem because <clears throat> from the business side of it, you know, when you're running a free admission fast festival, there's no back end, so everything has to be underwritten. So you can only spend what you raise in the way of corporate sponsorships and grants. So, you know, we started to write grants, we expanded on our corporate sponsorship. You know, eventually we had 50 sponsors. Uh, we probably had 10 or 15 media partners, uh, but the thing caught on, but it was always a lot of work. It was always a lot of work to raise the money to maintain the free admission policy. But I was convinced <clears throat> that a free admission policy was the way to go. If you want to be inclusive and you want to, you know, maximize participation, you make it free and you make it great. Not every free event is great. There's a lot of free stuff that isn't great. Right. But that, I mean, that, that doesn't do it for me. If it isn't great, why bother? It's so got to be great. Your choice of artists, then were you starting to think of um, a wider demographic or a, uh, you know, you had pure jazz like Dizzy and, so on, but you also had Pat Metheny uh, and Yellow Jackets and so on. So you must have been thinking in a sort of a broader range at that point beyond what you love personally. You know, it, it, if you want, what I tell people, what I've learned is, it, you know, if you want to go see an artist that you love, go do it. When you're a presenter, you don't always have that luxury. Um, uh, but you get a feel after doing it for a while, what the market likes and you understand the market's history and you know what the state fair has presented and you know what the sheds have presented and you know, what's been around and when it came in and who went over well. And so you study the market. And then I think after you have a working knowledge of the market, you start to program accordingly, but you still try to serve the art form. Uh, the, the major constituent groups that you have to take care of are the artists, first and foremost, the music and the people who create the music. It starts there. If it doesn't, you're in the wrong place. Um, you need to take care of the fans. You need to take care of the sponsors. You need to take care of the media. You got to give them something exciting to write about. Right. There's got to be a buzz. It's got to be entertaining. It can't be all the same thing. Uh, you can't be doctrinaire about it. You can't be a purist. You know, to me... Jazz has so many schools within the discipline, within the genre, and each of them is legitimate. I think what I've what I've learned is that some people's understanding of the art form didn't continue to evolve. Yeah. So it stopped in the 50s with bop or hard bop or whatever, you know, for some people. For some people, it stopped with Bix Beiderbeck. You know what I'm saying? And and but man. It's just one big continuum and right. everything on it, it, it for me is cool. I mean, some things connect to the audience better than other things. Um, uh, Avant-garde stuff isn't for everybody, but I still brought in the world saxophone quartet and, and Sun Ra. Mm -hmm. 
because I, you have to. I think historically you gotta present that, you know, right. and 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 uh, so it's experimental. Right. Now, um, did, did anybody? Uh, did the people in Syracuse? Did any of the guys you were talking about saying? To some point, here's a genre that uh, people will say jazz is dead. People will say that they don't, audiences aren't uh, that enthused about going to jazz shows, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The other, the old thing is rock and roll, rock and roll stars overdose in somebody's living room, jazz guys overdose in the back of an alley and so on. So, what do we, is this guy, what, this guy know what he's doing? Does this, is this going to work in Syracuse? Did you run into any of that? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have my, I certainly have my critics and my detractors and people who think I don't know what I'm doing, but um, I mean, I believe that I do. And I, I believe that our success is the proof of that. Um, exactly we created an event that people wanted to be a part of and people wanted to be associated with and people wanted to be affiliated with whether that was on a financial basis an attendance basis or they wanted to be seen at it it really didn't matter to me see it, it it's like a big wagon wheel with a lot of spokes that come into the center i don't care how you connect to jazz fest you can love jazz you can hate jazz you can like being at a big event uh, you can like being, you know, a part of something special. It doesn't matter to me. I don't, you know, I never proselytized and got on a soapbox and preached about jazz or it, or its virtue. I, I simply presented the music and I, that's the only statement I felt we had to make. Mm -hmm. um, um, if people found it, if they came to it, if they had a good time at it, if they enjoyed themselves, they came back. And so um, that's what we did. We just, we tried to create, we tried to magnetize the center of the city to draw people in. And the musical content and programming was the magnetic particle mm -hmm. that pulled people in. And the free admission policy was what pulled people in from outside Syracuse and down from Canada and metropolitan New York. So the model worked. Yeah. Okay, so let's push ahead so we don't run out of time. So um, there was 2022, there wasn't a festival, and then 2023, it, it came together again because I had been following it, of course, in my on my uh, Facebook and so on and so forth. So let's, let's push ahead now 20 years or 30 years. And what do we have? How did you get it started again? How did they get the city to say yes? Well, I think how it ended is more important. Okay. Uh, we got so big. I mean, we, we presented Al Jarreau and Aretha Franklin and I mean, Shaka Khan and everybody and anybody you can think of. Right. And the, the, the turnouts were incredible. Uh, we had moved the college from the center of the city. I mean, excuse me, moved the festival from the center of the city up to a community college campus. Yeah. Um, they got a grant to redo the square. They made it smaller. We had already outgrown it. They didn't consult us on the redesign. So so we were on the move and, and we found a beautiful campus location at Onondaga Community College. 
And the county was only too happy to welcome us. And they became a tremendous supporter. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, since they became involved, they put $3 million into this festival mm -hmm. and given us a home for free and more support to grow our educational program and everything else. So they were phenomenal. But we came to the end <clears throat> of our contractual period with the college. And we came to the end of our contractual period with our we had multi-year contracts at that point because you need them. Otherwise, you're starting at zero every year, uh, which is no way to run an airline or a jazz festival so uh, or any business. You know, it's tough. Um, but we, we shouldered on. We carried on. And uh, when we came to the end of our four-year deals with our title sponsor and the college, uh, the county executive at that time was building a brand new shed like Jones Beach, like mm -hmm. an amphitheater, right? And uh, she wanted us to move the festival to the amphitheater. And I said, well, we got a year left on our contract with the college. We can't break a contract. We don't break a contract. And we had a bunch of vendors counting on us for a score. Mm -hmm. You know, our staging people, our sound people, our everybody. Um, so there's a lot of businesses in town that counted on us that were loyal to us for 30 years or more. And we were under contract. So we were not in a position to move. And the, the political administration at that time took offense to that. They thought they were great friends to us and we owed them and we should jump on cue. And um, I see their point. Uh, I wasn't mad at them. I just wasn't able to comply with their timeline. So as a result of that, they got ticked off and uh, we lost our counting funding <laughs> and we lost our title sponsorship. And when you got two legs of the table <laughs> cut out, <laughs> the table doesn't stand up anymore, man. Right. So uh, so we went on hiatus. We were on hiatus for two years trying to find a new title sponsor, trying to come back. And then COVID hit. So we were out of business for four years and everybody said, oh, you'll never bring it back. Mm -hmm. And then voila, in comes the American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, from the Biden-Harris administration. So there's all this money coming into the state, the county, and the city. And I said, well, we got to latch on to some of that because we got to bring Jazz Fest back. And, and fortunately, we were successful. I met with uh, a representative from Senator, Senator Schumer's office, and uh, that got the ball rolling. And we picked up some Amazon money because uh, they had built a new plant in, in the city, in Syracuse, <clears throat> and, and we had county money they came back and we had federal money mm -hmm. and and that's how we brought the festival back in 2022 and that was our goal mm -hmm. and then we had a great response to that um Sheila Jordan was there and Joey D Francesco and uh, uh average white band and uh uh Boney James and uh, the list goes on i i can't even remember everybody who was there but it was a great festival and uh we 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 added a club night to the two nights outdoors in Clinton Square. We went back to the center of the city where we had been for 10 years. Okay. And um it, it the timing was right. And uh David Sanborn came up. I mean, we had a we had a great little festival. And um the club night, we had 20 bands playing in 20 different bars downtown. So people were hopping around like 52nd Street. And uh, and finally, I think we had a model uh, 
gentlemen, where we could successfully integrate the local talent that was based in Syracuse that was so great that deserved a showcase. Instead of putting one of those acts on the main stage one day or each day, right? we gave them their own night and it turned into a phenomenon. So then last year, this past year, this past June, we expanded to a five-day festival. The university came on board. National Grid came on board as a title sponsor. And um, we had 39 events and uh, two outdoor stages. Uh, we had a gospel jazz event at Hendricks Chapel on campus. We had the club night. We built a Hanover Square stage adjacent to the Clinton Square stage. And I mean, it was great. So, and now we're back to this year. And once again, we're at zero because we have no annualized grant monies from the public sector and we have no recurring multi-year contractual agreements with sponsors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now we've ra raised the bar. Okay. We, we've, we brought the festival this year back to where it was kind of at its peak. We had Gladys Knight come in and Tower of Power and Herbie Hancock, Terrence Blanchard. Mm -hmm. And um, we, I mean, we had great, great attendance and great music. And I mean, bingo, we're back. So mm -hmm. now we got to, since we raised the bar, we can't go below that bar. We got to find the same kind of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so success brings uh, more work at times. Well, yeah. And acts cost more now and costs across the board have gone up. Production costs, operations costs, staffing costs. <clears throat> That's normal stuff, right? But what happened in our industry, in, in the national music industry, in the international jazz community, a lot of our artists passed away and a lot of our artists are aging and they're trying to make up for that two years worth of revenue that they lost when there was right. a ban on on uh, festivals. Mm -hmm. So now their costs have doubled and in some cases tripled. Right. And so to maintain the same artistic level <laughs> we've got to go raise an incredible amount of money just to stay where we are right right yeah dave you had some uh questions yeah yeah um so the minute a festival ends it ends let's say it ended last night when do you start working on the next one the day before it ends okay that's that's what I thought the answer was. You're so studying, yeah. You're studying the festival as it's happening to see what's working, and um, you're always thinking about who can I bring in next, not how can I top myself because that you know that's becoming impossible. Like I said, with the passing of these great legends, mm -hmm. but um, how do what 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 works? What doesn't work? You're always looking at it. You're always thinking ahead. You're never in the moment. I get in the moment when I look up on stage. And Herbie Hancock is on stage in Syracuse, New York. And I realized that of the however many billion people there are in the world, the only people that are seeing what's happening are the people that are right here. Mm -hmm. The only place on planet Earth that that's happening on that given night is at that festival. And that's a special feeling. And that's when you let go of the future and the past and you get in the moment. It's mm -hmm. very special. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes all the crap worthwhile. Yeah. Because you see it working. 
And at this point, is is this your full time job? Are you do you get a salary from this? I mean, I know money's coming in, or is this just still after all these years? It's still a labor of love. You know, I always had day jobs. Uh, like I, I said, I worked in New York. I worked in Washington. I did project work in Los Angeles, Chicago, New Orleans. I worked. I ran the Detroit Jazz Festival in Detroit Music Hall for seven years. So I've always had a gig. Mm-hmm. I've always had a day gig. But now I'm I'm kind of retired, sort of. I mean, I, I'm off the road. I've been off the road since 2008. Um, the last thing I did was, you know, I got 20 years in facility management. So I consulted with uh, the Stanley Center for the Performing Arts in Utica um, for a couple of years to get them off the ground and develop a presenting fo- uh, philosophy and a marketing strategy because uh, they were converting from a rental house to a presenting house. And they didn't know how to do it. And I did. So, but that was the last time I was on the road. And, and you know, I, guys, truthfully, I'm 78. <laughs> and uh, oh uh, I feel very blessed um, that, that uh, my path has been chosen for me and I'm still able to do it. And I still have the support of the community and the music musicians and the artists and uh, the fans and uh, uh but it's not about money, Professor. It it never was. Fame and fortune for me are ships that sailed a long time ago. I love the music, and uh, I I will do this un- until I die. Uh, I'm on Social Security. We get by. All right. Now, so one- how many att- how many attended the festival this summer? Roughly twenty five thousand. How many? Twenty five thousand. Ah. It's a great number for Syracuse, New York. Not bad. And they come as far as where? Did you ever do a uh, question yeah. or anything? Yeah, we had five countries represented this year. Uh, Germany, um, India, Canada. Oh, help me out. Uh, Austria. And uh, someplace else I can't remember right now. And 22 states. We had partition, uh, participation for 22 states and five countries. And did you use Ticketmaster? No, it's free. Oh, that's right. What am I thinking? Sorry. No, <laughs> it's free. Right. Let me ask one quick question because we're actually running up close to the end of the time. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's not your fault at all. I'm too actually. long-winded. No, no. You could have a guest who doesn't say a word. Or you can have a guest like you who's telling great stories. So this is Wait. totally fine. And um, we, the, the, the question is, you haven't used the word promote once. It's been present, present, present. Can you explain the difference between a presenter and a promoter? What are the differences between the two? Promoters make money. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I, I really... I, I don't like the term. I think it's negative. I don't have anything against it personally. But when somebody says you're a promoter, it sounds like you're a hustler. You know what I mean? And I am. I like to hustle. I mean, that's that's part of my DNA. But but um, I'm a serious presenter of the music, and I, I kind of want to be regarded in that way. Uh, I think jazz is... Uh, I Look, at. I think American heritage music I think all of the branches on the tree are legit. I think they're fantastic. Um, I, I'm honored to be involved with presenting American music and heritage music. Um, I think I'm a preservationist and a presenter and a patriot. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I love this country. I love the music it's presented and I feel like I'm doing my part. And, uh, I think that makes me the three P's man. You know, I mean, if I had to classify and categorize myself as something, I love this country very deeply. I love its music. I love the people who create its music. I love, uh, the heritage and the cultures represented in the music and, uh, to be able to bring people together to enjoy their own music. I think that qualifies as something more than a promoter. So how many free jazz fests are there in the country? Well, I can tell you this, not that many. Um, You'd think there'd be a lot more, but there aren't. And they're dying off and they're going under. Uh, And there were some great ones, you know, the Kansas City Women's Jazz Festival. It was fantastic, but, you know, they're gone. And um, we're the we're the 24th longest running jazz festival in the world. That mm. shows you if you stick around long enough, you make a list. <laughs> and and we're the 13th longest running festival in, in the U.S. So yeah. there are some that are way beyond us, Newport, Monterey, et cetera, et cetera. But. We've been around a long time, and I'm I'm proud of that. But I'm not responsible for that. I mean, every artist that ever played a note on our stage, all the artists that believed in me, trusted me, all the fans that trust me to put on a good show, all the sponsors, I mean, they're respond. They get the credit, man. I'm just a catalyst. I just work here. All right. Well, unfortunately, your work is done on the music biz one and more. One and one and more radio show. Podcast. Was it okay? It has been great. It's not completely done yet, so we can't say past tense because we are ending. And at the end of every show, we say a word. Do you have any idea what we say at the end of every show? No, I I, I, I don't know if I've ever gotten that far. I'm sorry. What is most, it? most of our listeners don't. They get 10 minutes in and then they uh, they get bored. No, I, la- I, I last longer than that. Yeah, Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> at the end of every show, we bellow. Loudly and strongly, adios, adios, adios. Wanna be your in every sexy kind of way.
Till 